I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show hosted by two book nerd friends who talk to other book nerds, including authors, poets, librarians, and booksellers, just to name a few. Each week, our show follows a format. We begin with me being grumpy and dull, and Amy being enthusiastic and verbally using too many exclamation points. That is followed by a fun conversation with a new bookish friend about what they love about the literary life. Then we talk about what we are reading, and finally, we put our guest on the hot seat to answer some silly probing questions. We're glad you've joined us. So this week, we have a hybrid episode. We have taken the month of July off, and I was on vacation last week. So our original plan was to have a rebroadcast episode. And we have Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky on our minds because of the recent catastrophic flooding in parts of the state. So we decided that we'd rebroadcast part of an earlier episode with Kendra Winchester, founder of the Read Appalachia Instagram page, who champions Appalachian writers on her feed. But we also had the opportunity to speak with Bobby Kahn, an Appalachian author and friend of the show, who we interviewed in June 2020 about her debut memoir, In the Shadow of the Valley, a raw and unflinching look at growing up in eastern Kentucky and her dysfunctional family. Bobby has a new novel coming out at the end of August that incorporates more family stories she heard about her great-grandpa, a moonshiner, and her great-grandmother, who held the family together. And we have some great news. Did you know that helping flood victims can be as easy as buying a book? This Saturday, August 6th, Carmichael's Bookstore in Louisville, Kentucky will donate all profits from book sales from all three brick-and-mortar stores and their website to Eastern Kentucky Flood Relief Funds, organized by Foundation for Appalachian Kentucky and the Heinemann Settlement School. Their website is www.carmichaelsbookstore.com. We will be back next week with the true start of season seven and an all new episode. Happy reading. Bobby Kahn, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Bobby, it's been a while since we've talked to you. The last time that you were on our show, it was June 2020. It was episode 50. A lot has happened since then. And we were at that time talking to you about your brand new memoir, In the Shadow of the Valley, about growing up in eastern Kentucky. And today we are talking about your new book of fiction called A Woman in Time. So you've been busy the last couple of years. Yeah, I kind of think of this as my pandemic book because, you know, I had very little socializing to do for a little while there. And Well, some people got dogs and learned to bake bread. (laughs) I just really focused on the manuscript for this. Well, I remember at the end of our interview with you last time, and we asked you, what are you working on anything new? And you mentioned that you thought you might like to write some fiction. And I think you mentioned something about some family stories. So tell us a little bit about your new book, A Woman in Time, and how it relates to some of those family stories. Yeah, so in my memoir, I mentioned my great-grandma and my great-grandpa. My great-grandpa was a moonshiner, and I grew up hearing stories about him, especially because, you know, he was pretty lawless during Prohibition and the Great Depression. He was also fairly violent. Um, according to the stories I grew up with, he murdered the sheriff of one of the counties that I grew up near. And he also killed his own father-in-law, arguing over who made better whiskey. 
that supposedly happened at the, the at the kitchen table. So I grew up hearing these stories and I thought of this man as a hero. You know, he was certainly like a mythological figure in my life. And then as I was really reflecting on some of the stories and working on my memoir, I realized, you know, actually, even though I grew up on Bonnie and Clyde and Jesse James and my great grandpa, these aren't (laughs) objectively good things to have done. And he left a lot of kids untended and uncared for while he was in and out of prison. You know, and I had started asking myself, what kind of heartache did my great grandma experience? So that's when I had the idea to explore her story, because we have lots of stories about wild and reckless men. I still like those stories, but I thought, you know, the person whose story doesn't get told in that situation is the woman's, like my great-grandmother's. And even though she's gone now, I did grow up with her in my life to some extent. And so, you know, I was able to write about going to her house and looking through her, basically a life that she just left sitting in her old house. And then she moved into her new house, which was catty corner to the old one. And I've just always found her fascinating. I found her home fascinating. And I thought, how did, you know, she go through the experiences that she had and become the woman that I knew her to be. And, you know, what is it she experienced that my father wouldn't have known about or perhaps wouldn't have understood? And, you know, I wanted to really just dive into what could be her life. It is fictional. And there are some key moments that are from stories that I grew up with. But, you know, they're stories. So how accurate they are, it's all kind of dependent on some narrators in my own life. So that's in a nutshell, that that was the impetus for writing this book. I, I should say, one of the stories in my family is that I have a great uncle who was shot for running moonshine. You know, like he was shot by one of the feds uh, and killed for running moonshine. And and just this past spring, my dad and I and my and my mom tried to find where he was buried, and we couldn't find a tombstone. So I, I don't know, Amy, do you have any? you know, whiskey runners or moonshiners or whatever in your family? I feel like. Uh, No, but there is some cockfighting. Okay, that counts. It's not on the same level. It's not quite on the same level, but. (laughs) So, Bobby, that was a story that that was told in my family about this great uncle and went back, you know, and found articles from the newspaper because I thought surely this managed to be in the newspaper. So I'm, I'm wondering, did you have to do or did you do any research just to see if any of those stories had ever been written up in in local papers or anything? Well, I started to. I had access to, you know, a database of newspapers. And actually, my first thought was that I was going to write about my great-grandpa, and I was going to find out where he had actually done time and what he was accused of doing, (laughs) and then what uh, what was he convicted of doing. But I didn't spend a lot of time trying to do that. I did grow up with, we had a newspaper clipping in our house where he was in prison, I believe with Al Capone. 
wow. And they were hanging out in prison in their boxer shorts with their <laughs> arms around each other. So I thought, gosh, I'd really love to find that. But, and that's when I was like, well, you know, what kind of story is this going to be? Like, if I'm going to make it get really compelling and interesting for my readers, then, you know, is it going to be like, what a tough guy he was, like how destructive he was <laughs> and how many times he was in and out of prison. So that's why I quickly just decided to pivot and explore this much more cloistered world mm -hmm. that my great-grandmother's life would have been, you know, with a lot less mobility and specific kinds of autonomy that she wouldn't have been able to experience at that point. Yeah. So I am still interested to track down the actual history at some point, but that's where my focus went was like trying to sink into a psychological profile for her rather than the the facts of this man. Yeah. There's a quote that I, I marked in the book uh, as I was reading, and it kind of s sums that up a little bit. It's Rosalie is the main character who's based on your great grandmother, but this time Rosalie has two young boys who are, I think are toddlers. And, and her mother-in-law says to her, and something else you need to know, men die all the time. They go and get killed in wars or in coal mines or in some barroom brawl. They run off to do what they have to or want to, and we stay here to take care of what's left. I just, I really like that passage and thought it was pretty telling because that's what happens to virtually all the women in this story is they kind of have to keep everything together. Men are, they may not all be moonshiners, but they die or they move off. Uh, to go to another county to look for work. And it's the women who have to keep everything together. Yeah, a lot of the male characters so far, they're either physically unavailable or they're, you know, emotionally or psychologically unavailable. And I really wanted to explore, you know, thinking a lot about the, the kind of constraints that someone like my great-grandmother would have lived under like with so little political and social power, you know, financial power, what her power within her home could have looked like um, and power maybe among other women, because I think there's a lot of possibility there. And of course, that we've had a lot of change socially since this time that I'm exploring. Um, so I also really wanted to set the stage to explore like generational change. Like, what does change from generation to generation? How does motherhood and, and a woman's identity impact the children that she gives birth to and raises, how she raises them? How does that affect the next generation? So had a lot of big themes that I, I wanted to explore there. How did it compare from writing a memoir to this time writing fiction? Well, you know, I've, I've thought about this and I've tried to kind of put my finger on it. Of course, I didn't have memory to draw from so much. Uh, just those couple of like waypoint stories that are entwined in the uh, fiction narrative. So I had to really put myself into this world and these 
characters' minds um, more so than writing a memoir, which, of course, I could just revisit memories over and over and then try to create some sort of structure. And with fiction, of course, you know, the characters, everything they do and think has to make sense within that universe of the story. Whereas I think in nonfiction, you know, there's the saying, the truth is stranger than fiction, right? So, you know, if if somebody does something in my memoir that's completely oddball or unexpected, I don't have to have a backstory for that. It doesn't necessarily have to be part of some well-rounded and cohesive character that I've developed. Whereas in the fiction, it really does. You know, everything needs to be cohesive. So that was different, like thinking about characters and really having to flesh them out really fully in, in my mind, even if not all of that made it to the page. And then um, I will say the the emotional impact is different because, of course, you know, I wasn't putting my own traumatic experiences down quite as much. <laughs> but I did explore some traumatic experiences in the book. That was also pretty emotionally um, engaging for me, but probably less painful than some of the moments in my memoir where I wrote about something that is hurtful to me and then had to go back and try to, you know, edit for commas and make sure I'm not repeating words too much and those kinds of technical details. So, yeah, there's a little, probably a lot more distance between me and the emotional impact of the narrative, although I still found it really impactful to write and think about this universe. I think that's interesting that one of the main differences is that for your memoir, if crazy things happen, that's okay because that's your life, but in fiction, it has to make sense. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. So what was it like in terms of getting the book published, in terms of how your memoir got published and how this one got published? Has that pathway been different because it's a different genre of book? Well, I was really fortunate. You know, I I started working on the sample chapters and talking to my editor about the fiction while my memoir was like going through the last stages of production and getting ready to release. So she was interested and um, I was able to give her enough sample material for her to go to bat for me and go ahead and get it under contract. Oh, good. Yeah. And I'm really grateful that it worked out that way. And um, we went ahead and put a third book under contract as well. So uh, now that A Woman in Time is coming out, I'm, I've been working on a third book as well. Very exciting. And I see that some some early critical reviews are very positive about A Woman in Time. I saw that Silas House gave it a very nice review the other day on social media. Silas House, who is a well-known Kentucky and Appalachian author. So congratulations on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful um, for their support. You know, Silas's Robert Geip, um, another excellent Appalachian author, 
And then Stephanie Story, who's another great author, and I had the, the privilege of meeting her in a writer's like salon that <laughs> someone else who hosted a podcast put together for me um, to help me meet other female writers. So there was something really special about getting their praise, you know, the write-ups that they sent me because it's, you know, having other writers who can maybe see things in the structure of the narrative or maybe see certain choices that you've made as a writer that not all readers are looking for to, to have them enjoy my book and, and praise it was just, you know, really gratifying and a a kind of um, encouragement and affirmation that was great to receive. Well, your book will be hitting bookstores on August 30th. And so I hope all of our listeners out there will take the chance and pick it up and give it a read because I'm about 60% of the way through and the pace is really starting to pick up. And I just want to read and read and read and find out what's going to happen to Rosalie. Kudos. Congratulations. And we are going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. Okay, we are back with Bobby Kahn and with Carrie. Carrie, it has been a while since we've done one of these, but what are you reading? I know. The book I'm going to talk about is called Too Bright to See by Kyle Lukoff, and I listened to it in audiobook form. Uh, So I picked this audiobook because it was four hours long. That is the only reason I picked this book. I did not know that it was a 2021 National Book Award finalist. I also did not know it is a 2022 Newbery Honor Book. So, yeah, I accidentally picked a winner, as it turns out. So (laughs) this is the story of Bug, a child whose uncle Roderick has died. As you're listening to it or reading it, you don't know exactly how Roderick died, except you know that he was sick for a long time and that he was young. Bug is only 11. And so Bug's mom, you get the sense that that she's not terribly old. You learn that Roderick was gay and a drag queen. And so you kind of wonder, at least this reader did, you kind of wonder, did, did Roderick die as a result of AIDS? But that is never made clear. So it may not have been. Uncle Roderick and Bug's mom all live together in a cabin in Vermont. And Bug is getting ready to start middle school. So in all ways, this is a summer of pretty big transition. Uncle Roderick lived with Bug and his sister because Bug's dad died right after Bug's birth. So Uncle Roderick has died this summer and in the midst of grief and anticipation of middle school, weird things start happening in the house. The house has always felt a little haunted. It's very old and creepy and it makes weird noises in the night. And that's always been the way it is. But even stranger things begin to happen. And Bug has to figure out what is going on. Is it a ghost? Is it Uncle Roderick coming back to tell Bug something? Is Bug being haunted by something from without or something from within? So like, it's not like a terrifying story or anything like that, but it's a little tiny bit of a bug story, but it, like it's a very loving and gentle book. And, you know, it kept me listening and I can't tell too much about it because there's some pretty important stuff in the book, but I don't want to give away. So what age range would you say it's for? Oh, probably 
middle school. Okay. Yeah. Middle school and up. I gave it four stars. This was one, like I said, I had zero expectations of this book. And I listened to it and I was like, wow, this book has won all these awards. And oh, it's a really neat story. And wow, I wasn't expecting any of this. So I recommend it. And the book is called Too Bright to See by Kyle Lukoff. Bobby, what have you been reading? Yeah, so I recently read Embers on the Wind by Lisa Williamson Rosenberg. This is a book that I had the privilege of writing praise for, so that made it onto the back cover. And it is um, a story about a, a house that was part of the Underground Railroad in uh, the 1850s. And this house serves as this focal point where women from different generations have really important stories and experiences that occur. And they're all in ways um, tied together to some of the freedom seekers who stopped at this house um, as part of their journey along the Underground Railroad. So the house becomes a really important symbol and it weaves these stories together through different generations and different eras in time. I found it to be just heartbreaking in the best way and really beautifully written. You know, I always love it when a story manages to do something a little different. Um, And in this case, weaving together various storylines that occur on different timelines which can be really tricky to pull off. Um, So she did a great job of that. And by the end of the book, I just felt like this is one that's going to stick with me for a long time to come. And, you know, really developed a great care for the topic that she's writing about. And it made me really think about uh, the experiences of, of escaping slavery in a, an intense way. Um, she depicts it in just really um, thought-provoking way within the story. So I was grateful for that experience. And overall, it's a, an easy read. Um, you know, it flows really nicely and draws you in. So you don't want to walk away from it. I'm so glad to hear you talk about this book because I downloaded this one this month because it was one of the Amazon's first reads for July. The premise of this one really appealed to my literary sensibilities. And so I downloaded it. So I'm glad to know that you highly recommend it and that you enjoyed it. So good. Very, very good. Yeah, very unique. Embers on the Wind by Lisa Williamson Rosenberg. Putting it on my Goodreads list right now. I'm like, Bobby, I really need you to repeat that so I can put it on my TBR. Not for the listeners, just for me. Well, Amy, you have been in the mountains of North Carolina. Are you going to talk about a book that you took to the mountains? (laughs) No. (laughs) I'm going to talk about one I finished a couple weeks ago. It is this really fun little sci-fi fantasy novella called Fina by an author named Nino Cipri. And in this novel, we have our two main characters, Ava and Jules, who have been romantically involved with each other, but recently they broke up. 
And they both work at the same store. It's a big box store called Littenvarld, which is basically like a version of Ikea. It's a Scandinavian store that sells furniture and lifestyle wares. But this is the first time since their breakup a week ago that they work together on the same shift at the store. And then something very strange happens. An elderly woman who was at the store with her 20-something-year-old granddaughter disappears within the store. So her granddaughter comes to the staff looking for help. So the store management at this point calls all the store clerks into the break room, pulls out like a VCR and shows them a video about what to do when a wormhole to another universe opens up in the store. And apparently there used to be a specialized team that handled these kinds of situations, but it was eliminated when the company was implementing cost-saving measures. So now the store manager says that two minimum wage employees must go. They have to volunteer or they will be chosen. And who do you suppose is chosen but Ava and Jules? So into the wormhole they go with a strange looking tool that the company gives them that's supposed to help guide them through multiple dimensions looking for this customer's grandma and all the strange wacky things they encounter. This novel is fun but it's also a commentary on queerness and the unique suckiness of low-wage jobs. This novella it was nominated for the 2021 Hugo, Nebula, and Locus Award for the best sci-fi fantasy novella and it also was nominated for the Lambda Literary Award for Transgender Fiction. The author is transgendered, non-binary, and the character of Jules is as well. I listened to this on audiobook. It was narrated by Amanda Dolan, and I would recommend it. And if you happen to try this book and you like it, there's another novella in the the Littenverse series that's called Defect, which follows another employee at the store. That sounds like a fun read. And the name of that novella again is Fina by Nino Cipri. All right. Well, these all sound, well, I mean, I knew mine sounded good, but you all sound really good too. (laughs) So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to have a bit of a replay with Kendra Winchester from the Read Appalachia account. And we're going to listen to an episode that we had with her last fall. So we have a fondness for Appalachia and have had several guests on Perks who hail from that area, including Alex Harrow and Ashley Blooms. But Appalachia is much larger than just the Kentucky slice that Carrie and I often think of. Appalachia is really a huge area that encompasses a vast and diverse array of people. Today, we talked to Kendra Winchester, a Book Riot contributing editor, but she is also the person behind the Read Appalachia Instagram account. She tells us what makes Appalachian literature special and why it's so important to her. I want to mention to our listeners that we have a new website, but we're doing two sort of fun things on there. One of them is we're asking listeners to tell us about their five-star reads. And it's a virtual bookshelf, basically. So, hey, do you need a new book to read and you don't know what to read? Head to our website, check to see what some other listeners have recommended and, and why. That's fun. And the second one is pets because, you know, we love cats. We love dogs. 
And sometimes they make it onto the recordings, especially this week with Kendra Winchester. She's got the cute little corgi named Dylan who had something to say about some of our topics today. And you can hear him in the background, but we'll have a picture of Dylan on our social media, but also on our website. So head over there for that. Well, let's let Dylan have the floor and we'll also listen to what Kendra has to say. (laughs) Very good. Kendra Winchester, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So give us the scoop on Kendra Winchester. (laughs) Where did you grow up? What do you do? And where do you call home now? (laughs) So I am originally from the Ohio River Valley. My family is both Ohioans and Kentuckians. So I like to tease and say I have dual citizenship because if you grow up on one side of the river, you then will live on the other side. And that tends to be the tradition in my family. So I grew up on the Ohio side. My brother and my family now live on the Kentucky side. You know, but ultimately, I will say we it's UK all the way. So. <laughs> you were talking to somebody whose daughter and son, well, I have one attending University of Louisville and one who's graduated from University of Louisville. So we're a University of Louisville family, but I'm from West Virginia originally. So I really don't have any skin in the game except for that. You know, my husband's a big fan. I actually have my UK thermos that I'm drinking out of right now here to represent. So, um, <laughs> but cool. I, I married a Californian. And so we have a lot of little, you know, discussions about what the Corgi will wear, what jersey he will wear <laughs> during whatever season. And, you know, during football season, which is about to start, UK just pretends they don't have a football team. So he can wear <laughs> California jerseys right now. That's fine. <laughs> and so now you live in South Carolina. Is that I correct? I do. Yes. Yes. I live in South Carolina with my spouse and our Corgi Dylan. And I live now in the uh, low country. I lived in the upstate for 12 years and now we moved down to low country last year. And it's a totally new world. It's a different state. It is subtropical. I have a palm tree right now, right outside my door. I saw a snake the other day and said hi. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like one of those places you always think would be the ideal place to to live, but it always seems kind of hot to me. (laughs) It's quite warm, quite warm. You walk out to soup and uh, your glasses steam up very quickly. (laughs) So tell our listeners a little bit about what you do. So I do all things books, I guess. So my main job, my day job, I guess, is I am the co-founder and executive director of Reading Women, which is a podcast that features books by or about women. And we are part of Lit Hub Radio, which is Lit Hub's podcast network. So I do that. And then I also am a contributing editor for Book Riot, and I focus on audiobooks. So I do a lot of their audiobook coverage, like their audiobooks newsletter, and I do a weekly column about audiobooks for them. And I freelance and I do a lot of different things. Those are the two two big ones, I guess. And I also do Read Appalachia, which is just a side hustle project that is – it's a passion project. There's no money involved. It's just me posting books. So, <laughs> You know, the funny thing is I actually found you through the, the Read Appalachia Instagram. I had no idea that you were part of Reading Women or a part of Book Riot when I asked you to be on the show to talk about <laughs> Read Appalachia. Isn't that funny? Um, so I'm assuming, and maybe I'm assuming wrong, you, you know, your life right now sort of revolves around books, but were you a big reader as a kid? I was a big reader, what I should say a big listener. I have a disability where I have lots of headaches and migraines, and uh, now I can't read print at all at this point. But when I was a kid, I could only read print sometimes, and so I would listen to a lot of audiobooks, 
and play video games while I was listening or like in high school. I did my Brit Lit class was purely like audio listening and then I would do verbal essays for my Hmm. mom. Yeah, lifelong reader, audiobook listener, literature lover. So was the availability of audiobooks when you were in school, I would assume that it's not as uh, widespread as it is now. Was it hard to find audiobooks then? Yes, it was vastly different. It was vastly different. I could only basically read bestsellers. And that was typically the unabridged audiobooks that were available. And so like I have some Oprah Book Club stuff. I have read like John Grisham. And (laughs) I read Percy Jackson, The Olympians. That whole series was out in audio. So it was very limited to what was super popular. So I, I have a great knowledge of what was super popular in the 2000s, but um, that's it. So if you had your druthers, I, you know, you had to read bestsellers, but if if you could read anything, what kind of genres did you like as a kid? When I could read print, I read a lot of fantasy novels like um, Sabriel by Garth Nix, uh, anything Tamara Pierce. I read... I'm just looking at my shelf right now. I I did pick up Twilight when it first came out, and it was not popular when the first book came out. And so I got the audio of it. And so I actually have first editions of all of those because teenage girl. <laughs> and I loved Great and Terrible Beauty by Libba Bray. Those were on audio, and it's like this Victorian girl running around solving mysteries and going into the afterlife and coming Ooh. back out and stuff. It's really a lot of fun. <laughs> that sounds pretty cool. I'll have to look that one up. Because you have a wider availability of audiobooks now, do you still tend to like fantasy or do you read, I guess, more widely? And right now, I just am pretty much reading what I need to read for the podcast. My bandwidth has definitely shrunk during year two of this pandemic. And so I've been reading for that. So we have different themes. So we just finished recording a theme on incarceration, and that goes up on Wednesday as as of this recording. And that's kind of more how it works for me. When I have a chance to read something for air quotes fun, it's usually just a buzzy book that I think might be really cool to read. So like I read Rise to the Sun by Leah Johnson. It's her second book. It's like a girl girl romance um, Mm -hmm. at a set at a music festival. And so that was a lot of fun. So that's kind of how that rolls. But then I get to just write about that in the newsletter. So a book usually has to go somewhere for work at this point. Mm. The the reason that I had invited you onto the show was to talk about your Instagram (laughs) account, Read Appalachia, that focuses on that Appalachian literature. So, you know, I'm from West Virginia. My family's from West Virginia. I lived in rural Kentucky for a while. Why do you think Appalachian literature needed some attention? I'm a believer myself, so I, but I want to he- I want to hear what you have to say about it. I'll see if I can abbreviate my little soapbox. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, in the United States, we have American literature that's broad, that's considered more universal, more national, and then we have air quotes regional literature that is like specific to a region. Now I understand that. In literature circles, regional literature means you can't remove it from a setting. But I would argue that a book set in Harlem is also regional literature because you can't move it from Harlem and it'd be the same novel. So for me, every region is part of regional literature, which then means that different regions are also still American literature on a national scale. So for me, it's very frustrating when I work in books and when I tell them that my grandfather is a woodsman they laugh. And that 
they don't take rural people seriously, and especially they don't take Appalachian people seriously. People ask me if I'm married to my cousin. Mm. People have asked, did we have running water and electricity? People have asked all of these very ignorant questions, and then they go turn around and say Appalachian people are the ignorant folks. Mm. Well, we're all ignorant about something, and theirs just happens to be they don't understand that woodsmen are very much still existing. <laughs> Right. So for me, what Appalachian literature does is it creates awareness and educates folks not from the region that, hey, we still exist, but also that the region is huge and includes major cities like Pittsburgh. Like it just kind of boggles my mind. So I think Appalachian literature is so important because there's so much misunderstanding about what Appalachia is, the people there, and there's just a lot of ignorance around outsider's view of the region. And so I think Appalachian literature helps educate those and get rid of that kind of ignorance. And, and, you know, the joke in Kentucky, at least if you live in Louisville sometimes, is that, you know, Louisville isn't really part of Kentucky. It's the biggest city. And and sometimes it feels like there's a, a disconnect. And so even for myself as a lifelong Kentuckian, when I think of Appalachia, I think Kentucky. But it's really a lot broader. So do you notice any differences within the styles of writing in terms of uh, Appalachian literature from Kentucky versus Appalachian literature from Alabama versus Appalachian literature from Pennsylvania? Yeah. So we're using the Appalachian Regional Commission as kind of a guideline. Appalachia extends from New York State all the way down to Georgia, northern Georgia and northern Alabama. And so there are also subregions. I don't list them all, but that gives you a general idea of what the different cultures are. And so if you look at the map of the Appalachian Regional Commission, I would say those are great guidelines for the different cultures within Appalachia, and you could even break those down more. So in central Appalachia and eastern Kentucky and you know western West Virginia, that, that gets confusing, but uh, <laughs> when you, you look there, that's very much very isolated, very distinct. You go to Pittsburgh and you have folks like Deisha Filial who are writing, you know, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. And so you have lots of urban Appalachians as well. And so each different region of Appalachia has its own flavor and style. And what I personally find interesting is that, you know, there are 20 to 25 million people who live in Appalachia. That's a moderate-sized European country. There are so many different distinct styles. And so I love that that exists and that there's such a broad perspective. Deisha Filial is originally from the South, but she moved to Pittsburgh like 20 years ago. So we accept her uh, <laughs> as one of our own. And she has done so many great things. It was even shortlisted for the National Book Award. And that book came out from West Virginia University Press. So I really love seeing all those different styles and flavors and histories come together. If you look at the counties for Kentucky, for example, the eastern half is in Appalachia and the western half is not considered part of Appalachia, but there is a distinct flavor. If your state in particular is part of an Appalachian state, you could still feel the difference there. So for example, South Carolina has just a few counties in Appalachia. I lived in one of them um, until recently, but it still had that flavor. Like the state is still an Appalachian state. And so there's a lot of people who have heritage from the Appalachian portions. So for example, a lot of people from Eastern Kentucky moved to Louisville 
and uh, they have that heritage and they take that with them. Right. My husband's grandfather was from Pikeville. So that's just part of the, the conversation and the stories. And he was a coal miner and it's part of what you take with you. They moved to Louisville, but they brought that with them. So I want to ask about, you know, a, a lot of times I think if you're an English major, you know, you may have talked about Southern Gothic literature, right? So you think about you know, decrepit homes and, and ghostly settings and stuff like that. And so that's how you think about how Southern Gothic informs writing. Because Appalachian literature is so broad, are there, I, I guess, touchstones to Appalachian literature that tends to be, I guess, the same across whatever subregions there are? Yeah. So there are some key things that kind of make Appalachian literature and that are universals, I believe. So a lot is isolation, rural stories in that way. Um, while there are plenty of urban Appalachians, I think most people are, are more familiar with rural Appalachians. So that is something that, you know, urban Appalachians are pushing for more of their stories because most people don't think of them when they tell stories. I think environmentalism is a huge part of Appalachian literature because so many Appalachians have fought against, you know, things like mountaintop removal. I think another big part of Appalachian literature is family. Um, you think in Crystal Wilkinson's The Birds of Opulence, it's generations of Black women that are part of that. And you can see the heritage of what's passed down from one family member to another. You are in Appalachia typically because your family's from there. Very few people just move in um, to the area. Um, that's not as common. I mean, we actually have out-migration is a huge problem. Losing young people and their skills are moving to other places just because it's very difficult to live in Appalachia with the economy the way that it is. And the last thing I think is important to know is that there is a like subsection of Appalachian literature called Afrolachian literature, mm -hmm. um, particularly the Afrolachian poets. And uh, this kind of started with Frank X. Walker coining the term Afrolachian because when they would, you know, Crystal just said in a recent interview when I was talking with her, she's another founding member of the Afrolachian poets. But she said that when she looked up the definition of Appalachia, it was always the definition was white people mm -hmm. in the mountains. And so by using this term Appalachian, they're reclaiming both their African-American identity and their Appalachian identity. And that gave them a space to breathe and be fully who they are. Being Appalachian is also a key part of their identity that wasn't being recognized by wider Appalachia. And so I think when you look at all these different things, it creates a beautiful and rich literature. It might not feel like a New York City novel, but it's still very much still American literature. It's still very important to our overall conversation. What's something that you think that people who haven't read Appalachian literature get wrong about it, you know, if, you, if they just hear the term? I think most people think nowadays, I guess, that Appalachian people are all very conservative and believe a certain thing one way. But in reality, that's not the case. There are so many progressive movements in the region. I mean, in fact, Kentucky and West Virginia were democratic states for a very long mm -hmm. time. So there are people of all different perspectives. It's not just a singular monolith. You know, West Virginia has the highest percentage of trans people per the percentage of the population in the nation. So it, it 
kind of shocks me that people don't think that there are queer people, for example, in Appalachia, but also like you need to then help us like send resources. You can't just go hide in your bastions of urbanness or whatever. And, uh, you know, if you want to truly help folks and, and be part of that, then, you know, think about those as well. So there's such a wide range of perspectives. You might not realize that seeing like giant flags of a certain kind uh, posted on the side of buildings on the highway, but there are a wide range of people here. And I think people forget that. In fact, I think in Kentucky, one of the first towns that passed a fair housing ordinance was a little town in Appalachian, Kentucky, in eastern Kentucky. I forget the name of the little town now, but I remember hearing somebody speak about it at a political rally. That's I don't think that most people yeah. outside of the region would, would imagine that that was the case, that it wasn't Lexington or Louisville that did it first. Yeah. You know? And so. it's you know, a huge union area. I mean, we just hit the 100-year anniversary of the Battle for Blair Mountain. That is a huge key part of Appalachian history, but... It doesn't fit into people's narrative of what kind of people come out of Appalachia. And so they just ignore that kind of evidence because it's too complex. You have to work for it to understand someone else's history, right? So I, I just hope that by reading more books from Appalachia, people would begin to understand that history and fill those gaps. Are there some books that, you know, just when you think about Appalachian literature, those just come to mind immediately? Yeah, you know, I think of a lot of my friends who might be from a different culture or community to me and how they kindly just shared some of their favorites. Um, so for example, one of our co-hosts, Samaya, is a Muslim woman from Saudi Arabia, and she shared these books with me and in the kindness of, you know, friendship and whatever. And so when I share books, it's a very much in that vein. It's here are some of my favorites. Who cares if you have know nothing about the region? Go read like Silas House. You know, mm -hmm. there's a book called Southernmost about a pastor who is in Tennessee. And then there's a flood. A gay couple's house has been washed away in their neighborhood. So they come to the pastor's house. And then the pastor's wife is like, no, they can't stay here. They're gay. And the pastor gets into a fight with his wife and basically then preaches a sermon about being accepting and loving others. And he basically gets fired from his job as a pastor. And so it's a whole saga. But it's, you know, this man who's coming to terms with how some of his beliefs could be harmful to others. That's a beautiful book that you know, Silas House is a, is a gem. Um, he is. Yeah. And yeah. so would recommend I really like an anthology called Black Bone. It's an Appalachian poets anthology for their 25-year anniversary. That one's great. He's, he's very opinionated. That is for sure. And I guess the last one I'll mention is Crystal Wilkinson's Birds of Opulence. It just came out in audio. It's gorgeous. Well-beloved by all. <laughs> <laughs> I have not read that one, but I recently finished one of her short story collections, Water Street, and I, I enjoyed that very much. So, She's so talented. Uh, Birds of Opulence is definitely on my list. I just haven't quite gotten to it yet. So J.D. Vance published Hillbilly Elegy in 2016, mm. which has received uh, – <laughs> has there's a lot of opinions about it, let's say, and, and he has now launched a political campaign. So – what do you see problematic about his book? I feel like most people who are from Appalachia or have connections to Appalachia are not huge fans of this book. Whenever people talk to me about this book, they always say, oh, it's a memoir. He's telling his own family story. This is his truth, as it were, air quotes. But that's not actually what he does in the book. 
he uses his family story to make generalizations about the region and what hillbilly values, air quotes, are. (laughs) And it's not a good perspective. And one of the things I didn't know when I first read the book was that he cites these scientists who are actually like connected with eugenics. Oh, and uh, I did not know that because I didn't know who the scientists were, but I read What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia by Elizabeth Cat, and she's like, yeah, like this is a eugenicist. He's connected with a lot of racist, ableist ideas about things, you know? So I, I think there are a lot of big red flags flying in the book for sure. And I own a copy because I reference it so often. I want to make sure the quotes are correct, but it doesn't sit on the Appalachian shelf. <laughs> yeah. You had an article in Book Riot where you offered up suggestions to read in place of Hillbilly Elegy if you really wanted to get an idea about Appalachian. What were some of the books that you mentioned on that list? Yeah, so there's been two posts in that series so far. And I think the big thing is that no single book can speak for an entire region. So the idea was that these books would stand in for that. So I have Appalachia by Frank X. Walker. On there, I really like Step Into the Circle, which is an anthology of Appalachian writers writing about Appalachian writers, and it features contemporary writers. So, you know, we're not a region that's living in the past. We very much have a present. Even As We Breathe by Netsunuk Clapsaddle is the first published novel by a member of the Eastern Band Cherokee Indians. And so that's really fabulous as well. I think there's just so many great books that we don't really need J.D. Vance's terrible memoir to to speak for us because he, he didn't even grow up in the region. Like I just, it blows my mind sometimes. So I've mentioned your connection with Book Riot, which is an independent book site that has a whole host of ways for book lovers to access info about books, including they have many podcasts and I listen to several of those. They have newsletters specifically towards certain genres and other original content. So what has been your role with Book Riot? So I started out writing a weekly feature about audiobooks, and I still do that. Um, I've been a TBR bibliologist, so they have a company where that's kind of like Stitch Fix for books. You know, they they ah. send you recommendations, or you could also, if you're in the U.S., you could order the um, physical version of that, and they'll send you a box of books they just picked for you. I've done that. I did that for over a year, and then I took over the audiobooks newsletter at the beginning of July, I believe. So I now write a weekly newsletter. So I write about sixteen hundred words about audiobooks every week for them, and it's a lot of fun. Okay, so you said a bibliologist. Yes, (laughs) that is what I want to be. That's a great. I think it it reminds me. I think when Amy and I were tossing around possible names for this show bibliophilia was one of them i think <laughs> and then bi- biblioboobly was actually i think another one and now i can't remember what that one actually means but it's an actual <laughs> word so you were like the book stitch fix person yeah i mean there's a large group of bibliologists that huh. work for tbr like i would say easily over 20 i don't know how many there are now but it's quite the operation and it's pretty fabulous service. I've actually gifted it to people before. So I guess I used to work for that part of Book Riot, but I still love it. And I do spend my own money on it sometimes. Wow. We need to put our applications in for the next <laughs> <No>. opening carry. <laughs> no, I 
even so, <laughs> fight over who gets it. Maybe we can both do it part-time, right? We can <laughs> both do it part-time and that'll be like a full-time person. But I didn't realize that you were heading up the newsletter for audiobooks. I have sort of a love-hate relationship with audiobooks. When I find a really good one, I love it. But most of the time, I feel like I'm sifting through ones that are just okay. Do you find the same thing? I guess you've been listening to audiobooks for since you were a child. So so maybe your attention span for them is better or is more refined than my audiobook <laughs> tastes, I guess. So so what's your secret? Um, I would say the secret is to view your listening comprehension like you would your reading comprehension. Mm. If you're reading Anna Karenina and loving it, if you haven't really listened to audiobooks, you can't just start with Anna Karenina on audio because that, that'll overwhelm you and make you feel very discouraged, right? So start with something you've already read before. And I would say start with a middle grade or YA novel so that you your brain does not have to work as much and begin building up your listening comprehension. And eventually you will get to where there, there could be parity between the two. That's a really good tip. I do find that middle grade books are easier. I often find nonfiction books are easier too for me because I feel like if I zone out for a minute, like if I'm walking my dog and I'm distracted for a second, I haven't missed a whole plot point, you know, and I can still continue to go on and not feel like I am missing something major in the story like I would if I was trying to listen to Anna Karenna while walking my dog. (laughs) So I think that's a great tip you know, you're being a professional book person now. What is something exciting to you about the book world currently? And what is something that you would like to see change? What's really exciting for me is that we're seeing a broader range of of stories coming out. You know, there are more stories from different marginalized communities than there have been ever before, which is great. I would like to see more books by and about disabled people and more disabled folks be included in publishing. We are currently the smallest stat in that diversity in publishing report that comes out every year where they survey people. And I think we're less, are we less than a percent or less than 5%? It has to be less. Anyway, it's terrible. Whatever the- (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't matter. Either one is bad. Uh, So I would love to see more disabled people included in that. And I would also love for people to recognize that audiobooks are first and foremost a accessibility tool for disabled people. And so if we're going to discuss audiobooks, disabled people need to be part of that conversation because while, yes, it's great that non-disabled people can use them, they were originally created for blind folks to be able to read books and then other disabled people discovered them and got access to them and then the greater world. So I think a lot of people forget the origins of audiobooks and lose amount of respect for their purpose, I guess, in that way. It infuriates me when people are like, well, that's not reading. When when you talk about English language arts, that's not just one thing. It's not just writing. It's speaking. It's listening. It's reading. It's comprehending. It's this very big umbrella and it still counts. Yeah, it, it definitely does. And sometimes People ask me that question and, well, what if I can't remember if I read it in print or on audio? Like, Mm -hmm. is it not going to count? But also, who is counting? Who is going from door to door being like, hey, have you read audiobooks? Oh, those don't count for your reading. Uh, You said this on the internet. How dare you? Like, no one's doing that. (laughs) And why does it matter if it counts anyway? (laughs) Right, right. Great point. Great point. Well, Kendra, it has been so fun chatting with you. Thanks so much for joining us. 
You can find Bobby Kahn on social media at Bobby Kahn and her website, bobbycahn.com. And you can find Kendra Winchester at Reed Appalachia and at KD Winchester. Show notes for any episode can be found at our website, www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. And we're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook, Perks of Being a Book Lover. Come check us out. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally, a huge thank you to Ford Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org. <laughs>